and uh, hold your Bible open because we're going to be skipping around in the, between Matthew and Luke this morning as we continue in this series on um, choosing joy. And uh, the Christmas story, uh, as we come in Luke chapter 2, and we've read these verses, but you'll notice how the Christmas story begins. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus ensued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. You notice the Christmas story does not begin with once upon a time. That's how fairy tales start, right? Once upon a time, and, and that's how legends begin. And once upon a time signals that this probably didn't happen, and um, we don't know if it happened, but it's a beautiful story that maybe can teach us something. But that's not the way the Christmas story begins. It begins in history with a historical event because Jesus is not a metaphor. Jesus is a person. Jesus is God's son who has come into the world. And the gospel is rooted in history and it is rooted in the life of Christ. And so why is this important? Because advice when somebody gives you advice, they're giving you counsel about something you, you need to do, right? Could you give me advice on this? And they're going to give you some advice, and then you choose, am I going to do this or not, and, and am I going to follow the advice? But here's what the angel said further down in this chapter. Uh, it says in verse 8 that there were shepherds out in the fields nearby keeping watch over the flocks by night, and the angel of the Lord appeared, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Notice that it is news. News urges you to recognize something that has already happened, that has already transpired. And so the good news that brings great joy, he says, is wrapped up in what God has done. And God has just sent the most precious gift into the world that he could ever send, and it's his son, Jesus. And the gospel is the good news. It's the announcement that salvation is for who? For how many people? For all people. And what is the word salvation? The Greek word sozo, which means to save, to heal, to deliver. So the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is wrapped up in this baby who God sent into the world, God in the flesh. It is a historical event, and it is an event of good news, of great joy. And so we are focusing on this word joy because during the Christmas holiday season, the word joy comes up everywhere. You see it on signs and windows. You see it displayed in stores, sometimes out in people's front yards. Uh, there's, you know, joy to the world, or uh, we, we sing about it. We hear songs about it. And this word joy, in fact, is used eight different times in the theme of, of Christmas. And why is that word important? Because the Christian life is to be a joyful life. Jesus says, I came, I have come, I've told you these things, that your joy may be full. And we have, we've taken a lot of time distinguishing between joy and happiness. They're not one and the same. Happiness is based on circumstances. It's, it's something that is temporary, where joy is something that is eternal. It is rooted in Christ and your relationship. So you can be in the most adverse circumstances in your life and still walk in the joy of the Lord. 
So we've defined it uh, on your outline again. Let's go through this one more time. Our definition of joy is the settled assurance, underline that, the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. How many of them? All of them, right? All the details of my life. The quiet confidence, underline that, that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And the determined choice, underline that, to praise God in all things. So if you look at this definition, it is a settled assurance, a quiet confidence, and a determined choice. In other words, our joy is rooted in a relationship, and that relationship is with Jesus Christ, and that relationship is a faith walk. And so if I'm going to be, have a settled assurance in God and quiet confidence in him and a determined choice to praise God in all things, it's going to be at the result of my walking in faith with him. Wouldn't it be great if we all had joy, right? Everybody had joy all the time. But that's not the world that we live in. We live in a very uh, messed up world, and the reason why there is no joy all over is because we live in a messed up world. As we said in the very first message is that you and I live on two train tracks. One is sorrow and one is joy. In any given moment of any given day, we can experience great sorrow. The day can start out well, things can be going well, and all of a sudden you get a phone call or something happens to you that brings great sorrow into your life. But that does not have to rob you of joy. It may rob you of happiness, but it does not have to steal our our joy. And the second reason why uh, we have difficulty in experiencing joy is because we have an enemy who is fighting against us known as Satan, and remember this life is a a faith walk, and so he will do everything in his power to undermine your faith and trust in your heavenly father. That's a given. Listen, he doesn't take time off for Christmas, okay? And so oftentimes in the Christmas season, we battle the most concerning this issue of joy. I mean, think about, I take this analogy from a movie, okay? So a Christmas movie, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, right? So, I mean, you know The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, right? So he, uh, he hates Christmas, and he lives this cave, in this cave that overlooks Whoville, and the Who's in Whoville love Christmas. Uh, that's their favorite time of the year, favorite holiday by far, and his plot is to steal Christmas away from the Who's in Whoville and in a very similar fashion Jesus says that Satan comes and he seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy. And what does he want? He wants to steal your joy of the Lord away from you. He wants to kill your faith and trust in your heavenly father. And he wants to destroy your walk with him. So when you superimpose that upon our definition of joy, you can see how there is someone who is battling against you to rob you of your joy just as the Grinch was seeking to rob the Who's in Whoville of their Christmas spirit. So I want us to look today at um, three uh, weapons of mass destruction that Satan uses against you in order to rob you and to steal and to kill your joy and your faith walk and if possible, uh, your walk with the Lord. And he is so successful at this, uh, I run into all the time people who I engage in conversations who used to follow the Lord, who used to walk with God, who used to be engaged in a church, but then all of a sudden the enemy came along and uh, their stories, though the circumstances may vary, the stories are very similar in that there's a way the enemy made an inroad into their life and eventually moved them away from that walk with God. 
So we're going to look at this through the eyes of the Christmas story, through Mary and Joseph and the wise men. And I want to look at three weapons that the enemy is going to use against you because they're the same three weapons that he used in the very first Christmas. And so the first weapon is that of anxiety. Anxiety. Anytime you get stressed out with worries and fears, you can't be joyful. You can't be fearful and joyful at the same time. Anxiety is rooted in fear of the future, right? And so we've, we feel anxious about tomorrow when tomorrow looks grim, or we feel anxious about the future when there seems to be no promises of change in the future, or when life is spinning out of control and we're not sh- sure how to stop it and how to get it under control, and so now my future looks bleak, it looks dim, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen out there, and our anxieties begin to penetrate every aspect of who we are and what we do. And so when anxiety comes in the front door of your life, joy jumps out the back door. And when we come to the Christmas story, we oftentimes, you know, we're looking at it from, a, you know, a, a long distance removed from the very first Christmas. And so in order to try to picture in our minds what it was like, we have nativity scenes. And whenever you look at nativity scenes, they just look so meek and so mild. And I mean, here is Mary and Joseph. It's like, oh, they're worshiping God and baby Jesus is, you know, laying in the manger. And we've got the shepherds and the wise men there and some animals. And it just looks so serene. But the very first Christmas was anything but that. If there was ever an anxiety-filled moment in Mary's life, it was that very first Christmas. Anxiety producing, and for many reasons. Number one, she's barely a teenager and she's pregnant. Uh, In that day and time, it was not unusual for uh, a young girl to be married by 12, 13, 14 years old. And people say, well, why did they marry so young? Because their life expectancy was so short. And so here is Mary. Um, She is now a teenager. She is engaged to be married to Joseph. And now all of a sudden, she comes up pregnant. Now, uh, had Mary been, that would be anxiety-producing because how do you explain this pregnancy? Uh, And so if if Mary had been a Roman citizen at the time and non-Jewish, she could have used the Roman law of exposure. And the Roman law of exposure says this to parents. When you give birth to a child, you have eight days to decide whether or not that child lives or dies with no consequences or repercussions. That was Roman law in her day and time. And so here she is, a teenager, young. She's not like 30, 40, mature, very immature, very young. But in other ways, she was greatly mature, as we're going to see in a moment. But now all of a sudden, she's pregnant. You talk about anxiety producing because she's engaged again to be married. And this pregnancy is a virgin birth. She has never had sexual relationships with any man, let alone Joseph. And so how do you explain this? How do you come to your mother and say, uh, by the way, mom, I'm pregnant. <laughs> Who's the father? Jo- Joseph. Does Joseph know? No, he doesn't know. Who's the father? God. <laughs> right. God. You know, we, we think about that and we thought, well, you know, it's just. No, how? You talk about anxiety. You talk about worries. You talk about fears. Listen, Mary was from Nazareth. Nazareth had a population of 400 people. So, you know, that was a gossip town. 
and they were ruthless. Listen, I lived in a community of 500 people for about six years, and I want to tell you, everybody knows everybody's business all the time. And so here and now the news comes out, Mary is engaged to Joseph, everybody knows that. Now she comes up pregnant, it's not Joseph's baby, so the rumor mill begins. And it's not going to be a kind rumor mill, right? And so this isn't something she's going to like shrug off all of a sudden because how do you explain to the people around you, even to your own family, that this pregnancy is a virgin birth, this pregnancy is of God? Nobody's going to believe that. Everyone's going to claim that you are lying in order to protect yourself. And if that weren't enough uh, in this whole scenario of the first Christmas, when it came time for her to give birth a few days out, she has to make the trip with Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem, 65 miles on a donkey walking. How many pregnant women, ladies, how many of you would like to have made that trip three months, about three days out from your deliverance date, right? So maybe that's what sent her into, uh, you know, into delivery. I don't know. But uh, so then they... They get to, if that's weren't, weren't bad enough, when they get to Bethlehem, there's nowhere for them to go. They end up in the stable with the farm animals, and now it is time for Mary to give birth, and who's with her? Her husband. How, how much help is a husband in a birthing room? None. None right? She has no, her mother's not there. Her sisters aren't there. Her aunts aren't there. No midwives, no doctors. She's trying to give birth to God in the manger. And that's another anxiety producing scenario. She understands that this baby she is carrying because God comes to her through an angel and, and says, you know, you're about to give birth to God's son. This isn't some ordinary baby that she's giving birth to. When you paint that whole scenario of what it must have been like for the nine months of her pregnancy and the rumor mill going on, and she's trying to explain all these things and then has to end up, you know, making this long trip and giving delivery and birth to her own child in this horrendous conditions, and now she is left with the responsibility of raising God's son. And so the Bible says that when the angel was speaking, she was afraid. Why would you not be afraid? Because fear produces anxiety. Worry produces anxiety. Because for as far as Mary's concerned, when this comes out of the gate, it's like, I don't know anything about my future. I don't know what my future holds. I don't know how this is all going to unfold. I don't know what Joseph's going to do, how he's going to respond. And so she was filled with anxiety. So I want you to go back to Luke chapter um, one. And so here is a decision that Mary made that brought joy into her life in spite of all of these anxiety-producing circumstances in her life. When Mary was afraid, she made the decision that she was going to trust God and accept his plan, whatever that was. She was going to trust God and accept his plan. So back in Luke chapter one, as we kind of pick up the story in verse 26, it says, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, Uh, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and her name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings to you. You are highly favored. The Lord is with you. (laughs) What does it mean to be highly favored? 
it means that there is a supernatural blessing of God that is about to be bestowed upon your life. But you need to understand this about God's blessings is that sometimes they come with a price, a very steep price. In other words, having God's favor does not always keep you from experiencing personal hardship. There are many examples of this throughout the Bible. For example, Daniel was shown God's favor, but he spent the rest of his life in exile in Babylon. It was Joseph who was shown God's favor, but had a terrible childhood and spent the majority of his adult life away from his family. It was Ruth or Esther who was shown God's favor, but almost got herself killed in fulfilling God's calling upon her life. And so uh, God's favor is upon um, Mary, but as this scenario is unfolding, this is not going to be an easy road for her. And so it says in verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled, you think, at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The word wonder is the word for audit. It means to, um, to add things up, to weigh things, to ponder them, to intensely think about something. And so it's like she's hearing these words and she's asking herself probably like, am I really hearing this right? Am I really seeing an angel? Am I just hallucinating? You know, is this really happening to me? And, um, but God had chosen her for what? A purpose, right? And so the, but the angel said to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary. I, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never, never end. God had a plan. God had a purpose for Mary's life, just as God has a plan. God has a purpose for your life, and it might be that as that plan and purpose begins to unfold in your life that is from God, it may begin creating great anxiety and angst in your life because it may be hitting you, and Satan takes that, that plan and that person begins hitting you with worries and fears and like, how's this gonna work out and how's all this gonna take place and how are we gonna pay for this and how's, how's God gonna do this because it just seems like an impossible situation and, and it just seems like the more the angel is talking to Mary, the more anxious that she would become, that God is going to overshadow her. And she's like, like excuse me, uh, could I have a little more detail about what this overshadowing thing means? And so the word overshadow there is a word that, is, that was used of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was meeting there and all of a sudden he, his, his, it's like the glow, the glory of the Lord was, was overshadowing him and pouring out upon him. And uh, yeah, if you had been Mary, let's think very honestly. Let's put yourself in her shoes. If you had been Mary, you had been filled with anxiety, worry, fear. How's this all going to unfold? How's this all going to take place? I don't get it. I don't understand it. But she makes an incredible uh, response to the news. Now, I don't know what you're anxious about this Christmas, what you may be worried about, what you may be worried about, afraid of. Maybe you're worried about your finances, your health, about getting married, being married. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what it is, but I do know this. The antidote to our anxiety, to our worries and our fears are always the same. 
I don't know what's creating anxiety in you, but I do know how to rid yourself of it. And the antidote is the same thing that what Mary settled in her heart. And she says, you know what? Mary asked again, how shall this be? Verse 34, asked the angel, since I'm a virgin, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit is coming on you. The power of God of the most high is overshadowing you. And you will give, born to the son who will, you'll call him the son of God. And even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who's, who was barren was going to give, uh, you know, she's in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible for God. And here's Mary's incredible response to God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. In other words, Lord, I don't understand it. I can't figure it out. But all I know is I'm willing to trust you and accept your plan, and that's the antidote to anxiety. It's probably one of those mature responses from an immature teenage girl that you will ever found. Fine, she didn't grit her teeth and say, you know what, God? All right, you hold all the cards in your hands. What choice do I really have but to go through with this? She did have a choice. She could have missed God's plan for her life. Many people who followers of Christ do miss God's plan for their life because they refuse to accept God's plan. They refuse to allow God to have his will and his way to trust him in all things. And so she is grounding her obedience in the reality that God is creator. And when you read of her song, her response, after she visits her cousin Mary, it is a beautiful response to God of her trust and, and her ability to say, you know what, Lord, uh, I'm just going to trust you and accept your plan no matter what. The question is, have you ever come to that point in your life in which you have been able to make that statement? That God, you know what? Uh, there's some things that are creating anxiety in me. I've got some worries and fears about your plan and how that's going to work out and how it's all going to unfold and how you're going to come through because I just don't see it and I just don't get it. But God, regardless, I'm willing to trust you and accept your plan regardless. Until you do, you probably will struggle living a joy-filled life. You're going to live a stress-filled life. You're going to live a fearful life a anxious life, but everyone has to make Mary's decision at some point if you want to live a joy-filled life. And the result of that is, it's joy. That is a joy that is immovable, a joy that is indestructible, a joy that is not going to give in to, uh, you know, the thoughts of the evil one who comes and tries to fill our minds with all kinds of doubts and fears and anxieties about God and about the future because go back to our definition of joy because I have made this settled assurance that God is in control of the details of my life. And so my concept of God, if my concept of God is that he is good and that he is gracious and that he is powerful and that he is above all and that he is in all, then that confidence transfers to my life. And so now the, the next side of that is I have this quiet confidence that regardless of how my life unfolds, that everything is ultimately going to be all right. It may not unfold the way I planned it or the way I desired it or the way that I thought it would. But if God is in control of it, then I know I'm living according to his plan. It really doesn't matter. In the end, I win. And so as a result of that, 
then out of that comes praise and thanksgiving and gratitude for what God is doing. Here's the second weapon that the enemy uses against us, and that is the, the weapon of resentment. The weapon of resentment. You cannot be resentful and joyful at the same time. So where does resentment come from? Resentment comes from hurt. Resentment comes from hurt because hurt, when you are wounded, you may have been wounded by words as a child, and you can remember. It may have been 30 years ago. You remember like it was yesterday. Who said it? What the circumstances were, all the emotions come rushing back when you think about it, and it might be that you were wounded physically or sexually or emotionally. You may have been offended deeply through um, racial prejudice. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that people are wounded and deeply wounded. And so hurt, uh, woundedness evolves. And, and if we don't take care of it, if we don't nip it right at the beginning, it evolves and it just begins, woundedness turns to anger, and anger to resentment, and resentment to bitterness, and bitterness to unforgiveness. Harboring resentment will kill your joy quicker than anything in life. If there's anyone in the Christmas story who had a wounded heart, it was Joseph. How do you explain when your fiance comes to you and says, whom you know that you have never had a sexual relationship with, says to you, oh, by the way, I'm pregnant. Really? Who's the father? God? Right, 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 God. Now remember, Joseph wasn't privy to the information that uh, Mary had up to this point. Now later on in a dream, God's gonna straighten all of this out, but out of the gate, Joseph has no knowledge about what has gone on between Mary and this angel and what God is about to do. And so if there's anyone who, um, yeah, could have been filled with resentment that would have shaped his identity, that would have begun to define him as a human being, uh, you're going to find Joseph in that category. I mean, here's the woman that he loves and the breaking news. How betrayed he had to feel, how wounded, how disappointed, and, and how angry he must have become, at least initially. And so the Bible says that Joseph and Mary are pledged to be married. So, you know, in our day and time, it's an engagement, right? So engagements are easily broken, not so much in their day and time. A, a betrothal period or a pledging of marriage was a year-long process. It was a contract that was signed by the families. There was a dowry that was involved. And uh, so it was like you were married, although you were not living together. And you were not sexually involved with one another. But so if you wanted to, to dispense of that, you had literally had to go through a divorce. And, and so this is, where, this is where Mary is. This is where Joseph is. And it's like Joseph, when he hears that his fiance is pregnant, he's brokenhearted. And so uh, what is he going to do? How's he going to respond? What is he going to ultimately um, do with her and this scenario that he finds himself in? Here's the amazing thing about Joseph. Again, a very young man. His decision was to offer grace and to let it go. To offer grace and to let it go. The pain, the hurt, the woundedness. The Bible says that it is possible to rid yourself of resentment and bitterness and rage, that the grace that flows to us through Jesus Christ can flow to others. 
it's kind of like inhaling and exhaling. What you inhale, what you breathe in is what you're gonna breathe out, right? So if I breathe in God's grace, if I breathe in God's forgiveness, if I breathe in God's mercy, when I breathe out towards those who have hurt me or wounded me, I'm going to breathe out God's grace and his mercy and his graciousness. But if I breathe in anger and hurt and woundedness and bitterness and resentment, I will breathe those things out upon those who have created harm in my life. And so the Bible challenges us over and over and over again to breathe in God's grace and to exhale God's grace, which is incredible. You and I have the word of God. Joseph did not have that luxury. You and I read the teachings of Christ who Jesus himself displayed what it means to offer grace to those who have hurt you who do not deserve it in response. And so the writers of the New Testament forgive others just as Christ has forgiven us because we've so been forgiven of so much by God and received and inhaled so much of his grace. Joseph had none of that. And yet he makes this incredible response back to Mary. Mary is struggling with fear Joseph is struggling with anger. And isn't that the way it is in most marriages today? One spouse is struggling with fear, the other is struggling with anger. So what does Joseph do? Well, let's look back in Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one. You wanna, you wanna arm yourself with what Joseph did. It says in verse 18, that the birth of Jesus came about, that his mother Mary was pledged to be Joseph, married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. Talk about grace. He could have publicly disgraced her. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. And so he's not like... Um, it's not like I'm going to dig it in and rub it in and beat her up and, and publicly embarrass her or humiliate her or shame her. I'm going to do this privately. And so he has this in his mind. And so, but after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. My question for you this morning is this. Who has hurt you deeply, so deeply, that if their name comes up on the canvas of your mind, you just relive it? And there's, ang there's anger and there's hurt and you, you just like, you're reliving it over again and you're rehearsing it in your mind and you're recalling it and you're suppressing it and and you're trying not to be resentful, but you are resentful. And so the question is, why are you still hanging on to that? Because it's why you cannot be joyful. You can't be resentful and joyful at the same time. Resentment is one of the most worthless emotions on planet Earth. It beats up more people and keeps them chained to the past and imprisoned, and it is a remarkable weapon of the enemy because for some reason, it's very, it seems very difficult for us as human beings 
to, um, to just like break off that chain uh, that Satan has used to keep us captured and encapsulated in our past hurt. Listen, resentment does not change the past. It will never change what ha- has happened. Bitterness does not make us feel better. It only makes us feel worse, and it only you know, becomes toxic within us so that everybody you know, and everything around us begins to become the recipient of the toxicity of our emotions. We've talked about this many times. You can't separate your life. You can't like say, well, you know, I'm toxic over here, but not over here. No, when it's leaking into your emotional system, it filters its way through all of our soul, our mind, our will, our emotions, and we get all tangled up in it, and you just can't set it aside. And while you're all worked up over this person, they're they're not even mindful of it. They're not even thinking about it. And so here you are coming towards the Christmas holiday, and maybe, you know, there's resentment towards others that maybe happened around the Christmas holiday, and every time Christmas comes around, it's like, oh, I relive this all over again, and, and, but they're not even thinking about it. They, they could care less, and they're out shopping at Easton, having a great time or whatever, although I don't know how you can shop at Easton and have a great time at Christmas time. It's the season of brotherly shove there, and listen, as your pastor, as your spiritual coach, it is my job to help you succeed in life. And I'm going to tell you, you cannot succeed with resentment. It will never happen. It will rob you of your joy every time. And I don't care if the the person hurt you six days ago, six months, six years, 60 years. It doesn't matter. You've got to extend grace and let the pain go. Let it go, let it go. How many of you have ever watched Frozen? Don't make me sing the Frozen song using my Elsa voice. I can do it. It's ugly. It's painful. But my granddaughter makes me belt it out with her. You're not hurting anyone but yourself. And Joseph came to understand that. Unfortunately, he doesn't hang on to it. And so really the ultimate decision you have in life is this. Do you want to be bitter or blessed? Do you want to be joyful or do you want to be resentful? Because here's the result. The result is God's blessing. It is always God's blessing. You know, sometimes you have to walk through valleys in your life alone. God doesn't always let you walk through every valley with people around you. Because sometimes God uses the valley in order to um, unveil for us really where our heart is and where we are in our relationship and our walk with God. And sometimes the people that have created the most pain in your life, you're thinking, but they weren't there for me in my most needed time and my darkest valley. And sometimes God orchestrates it that way. If you read the 23rd Psalm, it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I, I shall not want. I have everything I need. And David said, even though I was walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I was fearing no evil because what? Because Lord, you, my shepherd, my good shepherd, my great shepherd, you were with me and that's all I needed. Regardless of what anyone else around me was doing. So sometimes we have to extend grace to those who have who have deeply hurt us, and we have all 
been hurt, and we probably have all hurt others. But if you want joy, if you want true joy that's rooted in this relationship with Jesus Christ, the weapon you must fight against, the weapon the enemy uses very skillfully is that of resentment. You've got to offer grace and let the pain go. And here's the last one is confusion. Confusion. Here come the wise men on the scene. Now, uh, I know that our um, nativity scenes have the wise men uh, there with Jesus on the night of his birth, but actually the wise men did not show up until about a year to two years after Jesus' birth. Mary and Joseph, they're not still living in a stable, they're living in a home. But the wise men, they were the intellectuals of their day, um, and there was great confusion around the first Christmas anyways. Other than the angels, Mary was confused, Joseph was a bit confused, the shepherds were confused. Uh, The Bible says that King Herod was confused. He thought he was the king of the Jews. Now all of a sudden he gets word that there's a new king on the scene. And that drove him stark raving mad because he hated that. And the Bible says that all Jerusalem was confused about what was going on. And so the wise men uh, were a bit confused about which direction they were to be taking. They saw the star. They began following that guiding light. And we don't know how many wise men there were. I was going to ask that as a trivia question, how many wise men were... at the first, uh, you know, at Christmas, but we, we typically say three because there were three gifts that were brought, but we don't really know how many there were or where they were from. It is estimated by scholars that they probably came out of modern-day Iran or ancient Babylon uh, as, um, you know, astrologers who were, who were stargazers because that was very, very typical, uh, especially uh, among, you know, the time in which Daniel spent his his years of captivity in, in Babylon. They, they may have come from India or China, but they're heading towards, uh, they're, head, they're following the star and they're heading towards Jerusalem. They don't have a map. They just have a guiding light. That's all they have. And so they're confused. Where is this light taking us? What is the ultimate outcome of this? We've heard rumors. We've read things. We've heard things. And so... They stop, which is amazing for men. They stopped and asked for directions, right? And so the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1 that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. Notice it says the Magi. Man, they were like seekers. They are seeking out this one who has been born the king of the Jews. I love seekers. Maybe you spent part of your life being a seeker. Some of you grew up in church, right? And so from the time that you were born, you were taught the Bible, you were taught the Word of God, you heard the Bible stories. Some of you were like me. You didn't grow up in a Christian home. You weren't seeking God. He may have been seeking me, but I certainly wasn't seeking him. I knew nothing about the Bible stories. I knew nothing about the birth of Jesus or anything that surrounded that. But there did come a point in my life in which all of a sudden the Spirit of God began moving me towards seeking out, is this God thing real? Is Jesus real? Can he really make a difference in my life? Can he change me? Can he help me in my 
in my life. And so, you know, there's, you'll notice that these seekers of, of the Lord, these wise men, they were willing to invest money. They were unwilling to invest time and energy because this was like, it's not like three guys just traveling alone. They would have had a complete entourage with them. They were carrying some very expensive gifts and, you know, um, it wasn't safe to travel, okay? So there have been probably soldiers with them, a huge entourage. They're making their way, and they're trying to find this one whom has been born of the Jews, king of the Jews. And they're willing to invest whatever it takes in order to find him. And it says that they arrive in Jerusalem. King Herod becomes jealous. And here's the downside of seeking Jesus, by the way. Uh, it might be that you seek Jesus, but the people around you aren't really happy about that. They're not really thrilled that you're a Jesus seeker, right? They think it's stupid. They think it, you're, you're, you know, you're just wasting your time. I mean, I, I came from a family where, by and large, no one was saved. And so it was like, okay, yeah, church thing. All right, Greg, yeah, gave your life to Jesus. We'll see how long that lasts. And, you know, I heard it all from my cousins and, you know, everybody else in my family who kind of ribbed me about the fact that I was trying to follow Christ. And so Herod asks the Bible scholars of where the Messiah is going to be born. And uh, Herod uh, says to these wise men, hey, when you find him, let me know. I too want to come to worship, which is a bold-faced lie. King Herod was extremely jealous. Listen, King Herod was a very cruel and ruthless man who had many of his own family members executed. Anyone he thought was a threat to his throne, immediately you, you died. And execution didn't come by like just you know, quick and easy. Sometimes he used some very painful and some very um, strategic ways in which to create the, the greatest amount of pain in people's lives before their, their death. I mean, even his own family members. It was said of King Herod that it was safer to be his pig than to be a family member. And so Mary and Joseph, they've already been, you know, laid, they're going to be warned by God in a dream to flee to Egypt. Um, and so the wise men, they're, they're making their way. They're confusing. They're, they're seeking God. They're seeking this Christ child. And so it says in verse 9, after they heard the king, they went on their own way, and the star they'd seen in the east went ahead of them, and it stopped over the place the child was. And when he saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child. And here's why we know that Jesus wasn't an infant at this time. is because the Greek, there's a Greek word for infancy. That's not the word that's used here. What's used here is pateon, which is more of a... a a young child, and so with the mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped, and they brought gifts of gold and incense and myrrh, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to, to their country by another way. And so here's what I want you to see from the, from the shepherds. They didn't have a map, but that's what we want from God. We want to say, God, I understand you want to guide my life. I need a map. I want to see point A and where it's going to end up in point B, and I want to see everything that's in between point A and point B. And the reason why we want God to give us maps is because we want to, we want to look at everything that happens between point A, my birth, and point B, my death, everything, so that we can evaluate and say, you know what, Lord, I don't think this is fair, and I don't think this, and, I, and now we're going to negotiate with him. 
The fact of the matter is, if God showed us our entire lives from point A to point B when we were old enough to understand it, it would scare us to death. But God did not give them a map. He does not give us a map for two reasons, because one, it would scare you, and the second reason is because God has called us to trust him, depend upon him. Remember, this is a faith walk. But God has given us a compass, and he has given us a guiding light. The compass is the word of God. That is God's, all right, so the compass, the only book where the author is in love with the reader is the word of God. And God is giving you a compass and says, here's where due north is. Just follow that. I'll fill in the details. And the way that he fills in the details is through his guiding light, who is the Holy Spirit. So Paul kind of fleshed it out by saying, listen, you have the word of God, follow the word of God. Listen, you want, you want a map for your life? This is, the, this is the best map that God's going to give you. Start following that, and when God needs to fill in details, he will fill in details through his Holy Spirit by giving you remas, which are messages directly from God to you as to what you should do or whether you should turn right, left, or just keep on going and trusting him to fill in the details as you go. As Psalm 119.105 says that he is, you know, it's a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. I must continue to walk by faith. And as I walk by faith, God will give me everything I need to make the next step and the next step and the next step so that we trust him and follow him so that our joy remains intact. Why? Because I have this settled assurance, this quiet confidence that God is going to work out every single detail of my life. And if I really want to know what they are, God God has burdened the responsibility upon himself. He will move heaven and earth if he needs to in order to get that word to you. But you have to be willing to accept God's plan and to move forward and to trust him regardless of what that plan is. And so here's what I find about the decision of the wise men. They chose to follow God's light one step at a time. We have God's word, we have the Holy Spirit, and the result is that it always brings us to Jesus. Everything in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, every single book of the Bible, every single chapter of the Bible takes us back to Jesus. He is the reason for the season, but you need to understand why he's the reason for the season. Because he is everything that we have in this relationship with our Heavenly Father is wrapped up in this relationship that we have with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And when you find him, when you meet him, the way that you know that you've met Jesus personally is because, first of all, you are overwhelmed with humble gratitude. There is no pride in, in, in really following Jesus because we are absolutely humbled by the fact that we keep making mistakes over and over. We keep sinning over and over. And yet, how does God respond to us when we come to him and say, God, you know what? I, I'm so sorry for what I've done. I'm, I'm just asking for your forgiveness. Do you ever hear from the voice of God, the Holy Spirit who says, well, now, now that you've come for the 14th time for this particular sin, uh, we're going to make you pay a little penance first. Never, because all of your sins have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and the righteousness of Christ was credited to your account. That, my friend, creates gratitude. 
And secondly, is that when they opened their treasure box, what did they give? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They gave him the best they had. And when you're following Jesus, when you're walking after Christ, there is nothing more within you that says, you know what, I, I, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know how it's all going to happen. I want to give Jesus my best, whatever that is. And so you may have lost your joy from anxiety, too many worries and fears. You're keeping them all suppressed because you don't want anyone to know about them. But God knows about them. And he wants, he wants to alleviate your fears. You may have lost your joy because of woundedness. It's like a knife that's being driven deeper and deeper into your heart. You've got to let it go. You've got to choose to exercise grace. Maybe you're confused. You know, I really don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. I don't really don't know what God has for me in the future. I'm really not sure. Do you know what you need? You need help from heaven. And you know how God helps you from heaven? Through a Savior whose name is Jesus. That's why he came into the world. Not just because we need him for eternity, we need him for everyday life. And that's where we oftentimes make the mistake. I've got Jesus as my savior. I've got my ticket to heaven. And I'll take care and control my life from here on out. And the evil one comes against us with anxiety and worries and fears and resentment and hurt and bitterness and confusion and doubt and all these things, and we don't have an answer for him. You do have an answer for him. His answer is Jesus. He is the antidote, and the antidote to those things that he uses as weapons against us is that we are going to what? We're going to trust God. We're going to accept his plan. We're going to exercise grace. We're going to let it go. We are going to seek God's light in one step at a time. We're going to stay anchored in God's word and anchored to the voice of the spirit. And when you do that, then you are able to exercise and have joy in the midst of the most difficult times in your life. It's a decision because joy is a decision. It's a habit. It's a choice. And it's up to us of how much we experience. Let's bow our heads together.